Chapter 18 of Daring Deeds of Famous Pirates. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Reuben James 4.3. Daring Deeds of Famous Pirates. By Edward Keeble Chatterton. A Notorious American Pirate. Chapter 18. A Notorious American Pirate. The notorious sea robber of whom we were to speak in the following chapter has an especial interest for English and American readers, from the fact that he was a member of the Chesapeake during her historic duel with the Shannon. This Charles Gibbs was born in the state of Rhode Island in the year 1794. From the sulky, refractory character which he exhibited as a child, any reader of human nature could have guessed that his career promised none too well, and when his full powers had been developed, he developed finally into a singularly cruel robber of the sea. From one cruelty to another, he sunk lower and lower until the inevitable gallows were ready to put an end to his atrocities. Possessed of that roving spirit, which was ever an early characteristic of those who were destined to become pirates, he threw up his work as farmhand at the age of fifteen, ran away from home, and signed on as one of the crew in the United States sloop of war Hornet. Off the coast of Pernambuco, the ship was in action and captured HMS Sloop Peacock. The commander of the former was Captain Lawrence, and on his return he was promoted to command the Chesapeake, and to that ship Gibbs accompanied him. When the Shannon emerged from the fray victorious, the survivors were taken as prisoners and imprisoned in Dartmoor, among them being Charles Gibbs. When prisoners were exchanged, he returned to Boston, Captain Lawrence having fallen in the engagement. For a time Gibbs now abandoned the sea and set up in business, but he was unable to lead a respectable life ashore, so back he went to sea, this time on board a privateer belonging to Buenos Aires, but a quarrel arising between the officers of the one part and the crew regarding the division of prize money, there ensued a mutiny. The mutineers won the victory and took possession of the ship. They proceeded to the coast of Florida, landed some of the ship's company, and then sailed to the West Indies to perform their piratical exploits, and in a short time had captured more than 20 ships and murdered about 400 human beings, Havana being used as the port where they could conveniently dispose of their plunder. It is difficult to speak of a man like Charles Gibbs in cold blood. He was not a mere pirate, but a blackguard and murderer of the vilest type. Of him it may be said in very truth that with his death the world lost nothing, but was the gainer. A pirate who in the heat of the moment, when he is being violently opposed by another, kills the aggressor, is a criminal whom we can understand, though not acquit. But a human fiend, who for no particular reason, unnecessarily sheds bloods and breeds women of husbands and children of fathers, is a devil incarnate. Such was Gibbs. In the year 1819, he departed from Havana and returned to the United States. His accumulated wealth, as a result of so many piracies, amounted to about 6,000 pounds. After passing some time in New York and Boston, he sailed for England on the Emerald, but in 1826 was back again in the United States. Hearing of the war between Brazil and the Buenos Aires Republic, he sailed from Boston to fight, if possible, on behalf of the Republic. He made himself known to Admiral Brown and presently received a lieutenant's commission, being assigned to a 34-gun ship. For four months he served in this ship, and then as a result of his satisfactory conduct he was given command of a privateer schooner which carried two 24-pounders and 46 men. Sailing from Buenos Aires, he made a couple of successful privateering cruises, 
and then was able to purchase a half share in a Baltimore schooner. But after putting to sea, he was captured seven days out and taken into Rio de Janeiro, where he remained until the declaration of peace and eventually returned to New York. There followed another year's interval in roaming about from place to place, and then the French campaign against Algiers attracted him, not to fight on behalf of the French, but for the pirates. He accordingly embarked on a ship that landed him at Barcelona, whence he crossed the Port Mahone and tried to make his way to Algiers. But the vigilance of the French fleet prevented him from getting any nearer than Tunis, and at last returned from Marseille to Boston. A few days later he went to New Orleans, and there he signed on as one of the crew on board the Vineyard Brig. Up till now he had led a restless, wandering, wicked life of self-indulgence. He had robbed and murdered. But now we come to the climax and decline of his career. The details which follow are essential to the story, and they indicate better than any number of words the type of character which Gibbs belonged. The skipper of this brig was William Thornby. She sailed away from New Orleans, bound for Philadelphia, with a valuable cargo of cotton, sugar, molasses, as well as over 10,000 pounds and dollars. When the ship was about five days out from her port, the crew began to talk about the money on board, and some of them, including Charles Gibbs, made up their minds to seize the ship. Before attaining this object, they realized they would have to kill the captain and mate. On the night of the 23rd of November, soon after midnight, the opportunity for putting this dastardly deed into action arrived. One of the crew named Dawes was at the helm. As the brig was plowing her way over the lonely sea, rolling her mass across a star-speckled sky. The steersman suddenly saw the steward emerge from below with a light in one hand and a knife in the other. He set down the light, and then taking the top of the pump, struck the captain in the head. The later cried, Murder! But he was then seized firmly by Gibbs and the cook at the head and heels, and without further delay hove overboard. Roused by the unwanted noise on deck, the mate now came up the hatchway, but as he approached, two others of the crew named Atwell and Church were waiting for him and struck him in the head just as he was asking the reason of the noise. The mate then rushed back into his cabin, followed by Gibbs, who by the reason of the darkness could not find him. So the murderer ran on deck, fetched the binnacle light with the aid of which the helmsman was steering, and returned below. This time he found his victim, and two others of the crew knocked him down and then dragged him on deck. Dawes, since he could not now see his compass to steer by, left the helm to see what was going on. And as the other men were hauling the mate along, they called to Dawes to assist them. In a few moments, the mate was thrown over the side alive and was even heard to cry out from the water twice. He was never picked up, so must have been drowned. Dawes was terrified beyond expression at these two incidents so that he scarcely knew what to do. The Confederates then ordered him to call a man named James Talbot, who had declined to take part in the plot. Talbot was in the forecastle saying his prayers. He came up and the Confederates did not instantly put him to death as he had quite expected, but on the contrary gave him some grog. The captain and mate being now out of the way, the Confederates then got up a keg containing dollars. They then divided the captain's clothes, the sum of eight pounds which he possessed, and a gold watch. Dawes was ordered to go back to the helm and steer for Long Island, while Talbot was likewise compelled to do as he was told. The next day several more kegs of specie, amounting to a thousand pounds each, were divided and the specie placed into bags and sewn up. After this the money was divided up without counting it. Gibbs had been acting as captain ever since the two murders, 
and when they arrived about fifteen miles south-southeast of Southampton Light, the ship's boats were ordered out. Half the money was placed in each, and the survivors got in. Before doing so, however, the ship was scuttled and set fire to in the cabin, so that before long she would founder and so not exist as possible evidence against the assassins. But after the boats had rowed away towards the shore, soon after daylight, they struck on the bar. One of them was saved by throwing overboard about a thousand pounds and dollars, but the other was seen to fill and founder as the men in her vainly sought to cling to the mast of the craft. Those in the other craft, however, were more fortunate and landed on Barren Island, buried the money in the sand, and soon afterwards fell in with a man who took them to the only house on the island. But justice, if delayed, advanced with sure and certain steps. In the month of February 1831, Charles Gibbs and a man named Wainsley, who had been one of the Confederates, were brought up for trial in New York on a charge of murdering Captain Thornby. Wainsley was a Negro and was found guilty and condemned to death. Gibbs, in his defense, said that when the ship started out from New Orleans, he was a stranger to all on board excepting Dawes and one other. He pretended that it was not he himself who first suggested taking the money, but after the subject had been discussed for some days he agreed to join in the plot. He even protested, he alleged, that it would be better to give up the plan, as it was a serious thing to take a human life and commit piracy. This, be it remembered, was Gibbs' version of the affair but having regard to his past record, there is every reason to suppose that he was now adding lies to his other guilt. Three days later he averred the murder took place, and all that he did was to help throw the captain's body overboard after he had been struck, when he presumed he had been killed. He protested further that he was innocent of the mate's murder. But the judge pointed out that even if Gibbs had not actually done the deed, he was there strongly instigating the murderers on without stretching out a hand to save them. It is murder as much to stand by and encourage the deed as to stab with a knife, strike with a hatchet, or shoot with a pistol. It is not only murder in law, but in your own feelings and in your own conscience. So spoke the judge. And he who had spent a life of license and piracy, marked by murders with only occasional legitimate fighting, was condemned to the scaffold. To the end Gibbs, while admitting his guilt of piracy, yet insisting that he was innocent of the charge of murdering the captain, although... It is true I stood by and saw the fatal deed done, and stretched not forth my arm to save them. Wainsley, however, frankly admitted the justice of the sentence and died penitent. We need say no more, but if there are any today who still have a secret affection for the pirates of yesterday, we can only suggest that although few of these pirates were cowards, yet there is not one who showed himself little more than a vulture in human form. Very rare indeed does one find instances of these rude fellows giving mercy. There is now and again such an occasion, but is like a stray blade of herbage in a wilderness. Personal vanity, the determination to get rich at all costs, has brought many a crime in its wake. And if men are still dishonest in other ways, we can at least be thankful that the wholesale murders of the days of the pirates have long since ended. End of chapter 18